Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Lift Big, Eat Big's new workout program, The Phalanx Method. Coach, powerlifter, strongman, and historian Brandon Morrison took a unique approach in his creation to this three-block, six-month-long effort. Using ancient sources and modern techniques, he was able to recreate the training of one of history's most destructive military forces, the phalanx. And that's not just the sales line either. This is only three days a week in the gym, and it's brutal. I've uh, competed in powerlifting, CrossFit, and spent way too much time doing brutal army PT. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done before. And uh, you can do it at a commercial gym or like me from your garage. Uh, he also includes little historical tidbits every week to keep you interested and to keep you hooked. If you want to challenge yourself or just try something new, go to www.liftbigeatbig.com and enter the promo code donkey to get 15% off the phalanx method. Are you ready to become a warrior of oak and bronze? Good evening from Baghdad. One of the world's oldest cities has become one of the world's newest power centers. As soon as major hostilities broke out between the two oil producers, Iraq and Iran, we came here to Baghdad to watch OPEC at war, to look in particular at a regime seeking supremacy in the Gulf, and at its remarkable president, Saddam Hussein, one of the least known but most effective rulers in the Middle East. As the conflict between his country and Iran got underway earlier this year, it was Saddam Hussein who declared, whoever climbs over our fence, we shall climb over his roof. Hello, and uh, welcome to another episode of Lions Led by Donkeys. I'm Joe, and with me today is Travis Haycraft. Travis graduated from the College of William and Mary with a major in Middle Eastern Studies and researched heavily on the arms industry during the Iran-Iraq War, which is why he's with us today. Uh, how are you doing today, Travis? I'm doing pretty good. I'm actually here in Iraq at the moment, you know, reporting live on events that happened 30 years ago. So I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, that's about as live as we can hope for, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So how, well, how's everything over there in uh, Erbil these days? Um, well, thank God the weather's starting to cool down. I mean, it's, it is Iraq, so the summers are pretty brutal. But the weather's getting nice, so people are starting to go outside. And I don't know, Erbil's a cool city. It's, there's not a whole lot to do, but it's very, like... I don't know. There's lots of young, rich urban Kurds who want to take Instagram selfies. So I think it's uh, pretty much like the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like they've pretty much got the Western world all figured out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we you know we bombed them enough, so now they got Instagram. So it's all worth it in the end. It's all just one giant flat circle in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, well, uh, you, you were saying that. Uh, well, when when we started contacting each other on Twitter, you, you said that oh. um, the Iraqi arms industry was pretty bananas at the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Had, did you have you end up watch? Uh, have you ever watched the movie American Made, the new Tom Cruise movie about like the drug wars and or the CIA running drugs to the U.S. and like exchange for arms in like Nicaragua and Colombia? Yes, and I was surprised at how much I liked it. No, yeah, me too. It was really fun. And uh, so actually, I ended up watching that um, kind of in the middle of when I was doing my research on the Iran-Iraq war and like the arms industry of Iraq. And I was thinking if somebody made a movie about the like the arms procurement program for Iraq during the time, it would probably end up looking a lot like American Made and it would have a similarly sweet soundtrack. Um, 
so that's I made my playlist of all this like sweet Soviet or not Soviet. <laughs> um, I'm I'm tired. Uh, but sweet like seventies like blues rock and like like Led Zeppelin, Allman Brothers Band, uh, Jimi Hendrix, um, and listen to that while finishing up my research because I think it would fit the movie pretty well. But anyway, yeah, it's a pretty it's a crazy story and. Um, there's a there's a lot to get into, so I guess uh, I guess we can get started on that. Yeah. Um, so I know in your uh, the first episode you ended up talking a lot about the like the Iranian Revolution and the lead up to the war, mostly from the Iranian side, and uh, but not everything was happening on the Iranian side. Um, in Iraq, uh, the um, the kind of the seeds for the war had been planted for a long time. Um, I don't want to get too down into the weeds of the, of the politics because I want to focus mostly on the, the arms industry. But in a sense, they're kind of, um, they're very linked to each other. You can't really separate one from the other, um, especially with a figure like Saddam Hussein, who um, he was, uh, he was born in like the 1930s in Tikrit, in, uh, which is like, uh, I think it's about two hours north of Baghdad. And uh, he was a poor kid. He wasn't particularly well educated, and uh, but he was uh, very ambitious. And he uh, quickly got into the kind of the street thug arm of the the Baath Party, which is like the Arab Socialist Party in Iraq. And uh, at age twenty, he ended up committing his first political assassination. No, um, they grow up so young. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the rest of us were in college or you know, just drinking at bars and stuff. And he was uh, killing people for politics, which is, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's one option, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but any, he, he kind of made himself um, a pretty important figure in the kind of a low to mid levels of the Ba'ath party pretty early on. And um, in the, so the Iraq gained independence or like real independence from the UK um, in I think like 1956 or something like that with the military coup that overthrew the king, um, who was more of like a, a British puppet. And uh, the new government started buying more weapons from the Soviet Union um, instead of the British. So they were, at, this is like the 50s, so they would have been buying like um, T-34s and then like T-54s. So like very early World War II era tanks and then like very early Cold War era tanks. And then for jets, like MiG-21s, I think. Um, and, but either way, they weren't really buying a whole lot because Iraq was not particularly rich at the time and they were pretty fractured. I mean, the Kurds in the North were making a lot of noise and being uppity. Um, and so there, there was just a lot of other considerations beyond building the military, but then there's a lot of political instability, um, throughout the late fifties, early 1960s, the Ba'ath party, was fighting with the communist party who was fighting with like ethno nationalist parties from like the Kurds or the Turkmen. Um, and then there are religious elements as well, but eventually the Ba'ath party became kind of the number one, um, actor and Saddam was pretty, was by this point or like the mid to late sixties, pretty much numbered one, number two in the Ba'ath party. So in 1968, there was a, a coup that overthrew, the government and Saddam led it. And in typical Saddam fashion, 
he uh, he overthrew the government by driving a tank through the gates of the presidential palace, uh, <laughs> beating uh, half to death the head of the army, and then personally taking him at gunpoint to the airport and putting him on the first flight to Morocco, um, where he served uh, or was in exile for quite some time before being then assassinated um, by Iraqi agents at some point in the 70s. So, I mean... You'll start to see a pattern with Saddam. He, uh, I mean, obviously he ended up being a brutal dictator and uh, he was not exactly the nicest person around. No, but... not Saddam. <laughs> not the romance writing, you know, freedom ah, fighter. I really want to get my hands on one of those books. <laughs> I have been looking for so long and I can't, I think one was called like Z- Zabiah and the King or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Like I think it's Zainab, Zainab yeah. and the King. Yeah. I found I found one copy on Amazon for like $150 oh, yeah. and uh yeah uh yeah go ahead and donate to the Patreon so I can buy Saddam's oh, books. Oh I will yeah do that as a reading series in a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh he's he's dead so we don't have to worry about giving him any you know royalties. Well, that's true. Yeah yeah but I guess then at the same time you couldn't have him on as a guest on the pod so Oh god uh, I would love to. I think his daughter's <laughs> still alive so you know. Oh yeah they're in um Jordan actually I think or Qatar I can't remember. I know he has, um, uh, is it like two daughters? I know one is like a huge Saddam um, apologist and the other one is oh, kind of like, you know, he's, he was kind of an asshole, but he was a good dad. Yeah, I think he has two daughters and then his wife. And I think they're both in Jordan. All of them are in Jordan. One's in Qatar. And they're all like, they all have arrest warrants out on them from the Iraqi government. Or <laughs> at least, at least supposedly, um, the official reason is because they supposedly like provided tons of money to like Sunni insurgents during like 2006, 2007 and also ISIS. Oh um, yeah. With the Ba'athist loyalists so, joining them pretty yeah. much as soon as they invaded. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah it's, uh, that little, that little guy. Yeah, it was actually funny. I was talking to uh, one of my Iraqi coworkers here and uh, we were talking about this just like two or three days ago um, about Saddam's family. And one of them was like, Oh, his wife. Oh yeah. She was so ugly. <laughs> so it's, i mean and he was kurdish too and that's the first thing he remembered um was that she was ugly and not like the alan fall genocide campaign so you know priorities yeah you i mean uh, you might not be a looker <laughs> but have you ever been uglier than genocide damn <laughs> <laughs> i didn't think about it that way but no you're right wow <laughs> yeah anyway so saddam was um he was a pretty ambitious guy and he knew how to use any and all available means to get what he wanted. Um, be it personally killing his political enemies, um, or, you know, sending in the army to commit genocide. He knew how to get what he wanted. And he also knew very well what he wanted. So he took power in 1968. Well, he wasn't number one at the time. He was, uh, he was in like a power sharing agreement with his cousin. Um, but, he was de facto like number one or number two in the country after starting in 1968. And, um, when he took power, the Iraqi military was not in really good shape. Um, it wasn't very big. It was poorly funded. It had like 90 some thousand troops at the time. Um, and its annual defense budget was $250 million, which, uh, which is in 1968 dollars. So that's probably like, I don't, I don't know about like a lot. I mean, obviously it's probably a couple billion in modern, yeah. Um, $28, but it's still pretty small, even for the time. 
Um, and uh, they had just one single armored division with only 500 tanks. And most of those were T-34s and T-54s. Um, and like a handful of T-55s, which are like the... I think they first started entering major production in the late 50s, early 60s. So even their best tanks weren't like brand new and they didn't have very many of them. And they also had a couple of older British tanks like the Centurion, which was like the first, I think, kind of main battle tank concept or at least kind of got the ball rolling on that. And then even <laughs> they even had a couple of old um, American World War II era M24 Chaffee light tanks. Oh, man. Um, so they had a pretty diverse um, group, so they had no real like single supply chain or anything. Um, and the tanks they did have weren't that great. Um, and then they had just a hundred armored personnel carriers, um, which are mostly like Soviet BTR 152s, and then a couple of British Ferret armored cars. Um, so again, like very little in the way of uh, mechanized equipment um, and uh, and tanks. And then their air force was similarly not particularly great. Although um, it was probably a little bit better off than the army um, because they had uh, few, like a few dozen MiG-21s, a few dozen MiG-17s and uh, SU-7. So like early Cold War Soviet um, fighter jets and bombers and stuff like that. Um, and then a couple of like old British, British jets. So even their air force wasn't that great. Um, and also the worst part uh, was that they, uh, they had essentially no independence in how to use or maintain um, their equipment. The Soviets were in charge of all of the maintenance of any Soviet-made equipment. Um, it was Soviet technicians who were contracted to maintain everything, and they were they would never teach Iraqi technicians how to like repair engines or anything like that. So, for example, if a, if a jet uh, needed its engine repaired, they had to send it back to the Soviet Union um, for that to happen. And, uh, Which meant that they were, sorry. Oh yeah, sorry, uh, don't mean to interrupt, but isn't yep. uh, is we talked about this a little bit, but isn't that kind of what the U.S. does now? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Actually, we do, um, especially with Iraq, like with all the the Abrams tanks and the F-16s that we sold them. Um, I'm pretty sure those are like 90% maintained by Americans, or at least like American companies, right? Um, which makes it really expensive and. Um, kind of a pain in the ass generally <laughs> to to get those things running if you're like in a pinch. Like I know that the Americans refused to deliver F-16s that the Iraqis had paid for in cash, even like while ISIS was like within mortar range of Baghdad airport. Um, so if you've got an unreliable partner selling most of you most of your weapons, you're in kind of a bad situation, um, which is where the Iraqis fa- found themselves in in right after Saddam gained power because he he immediately tried to um, suppress the Kurdish rebellion. Um, and this is 1968, 1969. And the Soviets immediately cut off aid um, because the Soviets were trying to play both sides um, by being friendly with the Kurds and selling weapons to Iraq. And so you couldn't be friendly with the Kurds if the Iraqi army was killing all of them. So they Time immediately really cut is off. a flat circle. <laughs> Honestly, though. <laughs> you know, history repeats itself, and honestly, I don't think any learning we can do will prevent us from repeating it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so the Soviets cut off all their support, and the Iraqi army basically immediately stopped working um, because they can't maintain any of their jets or their tanks, and they don't have any more bullets or bombs. Um, and what this ends up doing is 
is uh, the Saddam is humiliated and he's forced to sign uh, an, an agreement with the head of the Kurds, uh, Mustafa Barzani, um, who uh, they, they signed an agreement that basically said that in 1974, Iraq would give them autonomy. And in the four preceding years, there would be a ceasefire. Um, but also, more importantly, this kind of taught Saddam a lesson, a very important one, and that was that you can't rely 100% on the Soviets, and that means you're going to have to start buying from other people. And also, in order to beat the Kurds, you're going to need a bigger military and a better military. And uh, he soon after started looking towards other countries, and uh, he was initially looking mostly at France, um, but he didn't really do anything um, particularly serious. In 1972, he met with uh, the French president at the time, uh, Georges Pompidou. I never studied French, so my apologize, my apologies in advance. There's going to be a lot of butchered French pronunciation. Oh, I get it all the time. So. <laughs> yeah, I can do the Arabic stuff and the Iranian or stuff, but not the French or the Brazilian or Brazilian Portuguese, which we will be getting into later. Uh, but yeah, so he bought, he bought a couple of helicopters and some armored cars, but nothing too serious at the time. But the, the French thought the Iraqi cash looked just like any cash. And that means it worked. Um, so they were pretty interested in continuing the deal. And, uh, the, the Iraqis were also interested in continuing with their, uh, their purchases from French, but the, from France, but things only went into high gear um, in 1973 when something happened that didn't involve Iraq at all. Namely, in October of 1973, Egypt and Syria launched a dual invasion of Israel. Um, the the war was quick and brutal, um, and the Egyptians and Syrians were eventually defeated by the uh, Israeli military. And at the time, the Israelis were mostly equipped um, with French and American equipment, like um, M60 Patton tanks and Mirage 3 jets from France. Um, and uh, the Egyptians and the Syrians were equipped mostly with uh, Soviet equipment, like T-55 tanks, T-62 tanks, and like MiG-21s, uh, MiG-17s, things like that. Um, and uh, the Iraqis watched the war, and they watched the Syrians and the Egyptians lose and the lesson Saddam learned from the war was that the Soviet equipment was inferior to the Western equipment that the Israelis were using. And unfortunately for Saddam, um, and potentially fortunately for the world, well, I don't know about that, but um, <laughs> he, <laughs> he wasn't necessarily entirely correct. Um, he kind of made the mistake of thinking that the, the um, and this would doom him later on as well, that all that mattered when it comes to military is what kind of equipment you have. Like you need the fanciest, most expensive equipment and that's going to win you the war. And, uh, it, this wasn't the case in 1973 for the Egyptians and the Syrians. Like they, their tanks were probably equal or superior to the, um, Israeli tanks. Like a lot of the Israelis weren't entirely equipped with M60s. Like when the Syrians, um, were launching their assault on the Golan Heights. The Israeli defenders were equipped with um, uh, Centurion tanks, uh, the British Centurion, as well as a lot of like modified um, M4 Shermans, like um, the American World War II tank. Oh, wow. Um, and those were up against the Syrians had T-55s and T-62s, which were categorically technically superior 
to the uh, Sherman and Centurion tanks that the Israelis were using. Yet nonetheless, the uh, the Syrians were pretty soundly defeated in Golan. Um, I think they sustained something like 500 tank losses versus about 200 um, Israeli tank losses. Um, and then were basically completely routed um, with an Israeli counterattack. And the reason for and a similar event happened um, with the Egyptians when they were uh, attacking in Sinai. Um, again, like despite having more and possibly better tanks, they were defeated. And the reason for this was because the um, the Israeli tank gunners were far better trained and more experienced than the uh, Syrian and Egyptians. Like the the Israelis could pretty comfortably engage targets starting at around 1,500 meters, while the uh, Syrian and Egyptians were really unable to do anything past 1,000. So um, there was at least a 500-meter gap where the Syrians and Egyptians were basically sitting ducks. And that's a large part of the reason they ended up losing. Yet nonetheless, Saddam looked at the war, and what he saw was, I need to buy Mirage jets, and I need to buy Mirage jets today. And that's what he did. He... uh, after the war, he, the 1973 Arab-Israeli war, he developed a very, uh, in, like a huge plan <laughs> to completely revamp the Iraqi industrial base um, in order to f- build and expand its military industry, in order to build and expand its military. And this was going to require a really um, just complete overhaul or really not even over overhaul implies that there was something to start with, <laughs> but there really wasn't in this case, Iraq basically had no military industry and it, what industry it did have was basically, um, related to like the like oil re- refineries and shipping. Um, and an oil refinery is great for making oil, but it's not really good for creating tanks. Um, and so what they needed to do was build factories build electrical plants, um, build chemical plants, um, as well as purchasing weapons. So uh, in 1974, Saddam stated to a, a gathering of journalists that we must cooperate and deal with states and companies who implement for us here in Iraq projects that our experience and capabilities cannot handle in their entirety or which are beyond our technical capabilities, which basically meant that they needed a kind of a dual approach to this, namely buying new weapons and equipment and also training, hiring foreign experts and engineers in order to, to build factories and stuff, as well as training Iraqi experts. Um, all so from as, scratch? All from scratch. They started with nothing and uh, basically they used Iraq's oil money to buy the skill they needed to go from zero to 100 within 10 years. Um, so, uh, thousands of foreign experts, engineers, physicists, um, and so on started flowing into Iraq from a number of different countries like France, um, Brazil, Yugoslavia, and so on. And, uh, Saddam turned to the very important business of basically going on a huge shopping spree across the world. Um, for example, in to kind of kick it off in March of 1975, French um, sales experts from um, the Dassault Aviation, which was the uh, French company that manufactured the Mirage jet, the Mirage fighter jet, as well as the engine manufacturing company Snecma, I probably pronounced that wrong, and uh, the 
uh, Office General de l'Air, which again, pronunciation, is probably terrible. But that's the, the French military export office, um, particularly with regards to um, air equipment. They all visited Baghdad and they met with um, Iraqi military um, officers and they said that they would sell them the Mirage 3 jets that the Israelis had used to great success during the 1973 war. But not only that, they would do one better and actually sell them the brand new Mirage F1 jet, um, which the company had only just started production and the French Air Force hadn't even gotten access to yet. Um, I feel like this is a con. (laughs) No, (laughs) it is not. The deal would eventually be finalized in 1977, despite all, and it, it only took that long. It only took two years because uh, the French Air Force was very reluctant to relinquish their latest technology in terms of electronics, radar, etc. But the uh, the uh, Iraqi greenbacks spoke louder than French Air Force, um, you know, not wanting to sell their equipment to some crazy Middle Eastern dictator. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people don't uh, rem- don't realize that France is one of the largest arms dealers in the world. I mean, you know, there's the U.S. and really? Russia and China, but France is up there. Oh, and even more so at this time, because they saw themselves as kind of the... Because this was before China really entered the game. So the French saw themselves as kind of the third the third way of arms exports. Um, so if, if, you, if you were a, a non-aligned country and you weren't sure who to buy from, you would almost certainly be able to buy from France. Um, as evidenced by <laughs> Saddam Hussein um, being able to buy basically anything. And we're going to get to some pretty scary stuff as far as to what the French were willing to sell. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as the Mirage deal was being finalized in Baghdad, Saddam visited uh, the new French president, Jacques Chirac, in Paris and signed a series of very large deals for both weapons and infrastructure. Infrastructure included things like petrochemical plants, desalination plants, glass, gas liquefaction complex complexes, as well as things like housing pro- projects, telecommunications, like infrastructure, broadcasting networks, fertilizer plants, and then more on the military side, defense electronics factories, truck and car assembly plants. They wanted to build a new airport, a subway system, a naval yard. And then on top of that, Exocet anti-ship missiles, Milan and hot anti-tank missiles, Magic, Martel, and Armat. I think those are air-to-air missiles. Alouette, Gazelle, and Super Puma, Puma hel- helicopters, AMX-30 self-propelled howitzers, radars, and, wait for it, a nuclear reactor. A fully functional nuclear reactor to be built in the western Ambar Desert near the town of Kaim, uh, which they would be dubbing the Tammuz facility. And this facility would explicitly be capable of producing the material for a nuclear weapon. All France, this, what is you doing? <laughs> yes. Uh, and they, the, Fran- the French did this basically without hesitation. Um, and Iraq basically what? just immediately transferred cash to them, and the French, French basically immediately transferred them whatever they asked for, be it um, a nuclear reactor, uh, aircraft, the latest aircraft, um, and the latest in tanks and other equipment. So yeah, the French were uh, a little crazy at the time. <laughs> I think they're <laughs> maybe trying to prove, prove themselves a little too hard. But yeah, so basically, as soon as this deal was signed, um, the French started uh, 
putting together the stuff that they needed to transfer the reactor. And there, there's a whole saga about the uh, the transfer of, and like the production of this nuclear reactor. That's kind of a story for another day. But uh, suffice it to say, it was pretty crazy. But they, they did eventually begin construction of this facility and were pretty close to getting it up and running um, by the time the, the war with Iran started. But it wasn't just France. Um, the uh, Saddam was smart enough to not lay all of his uh, hopes just on the French. And he also started turning to particularly other developing countries, um, like other non-aligned countries that were starting to develop their own internal um, arms and other industry like Brazil, Yugoslavia, Egypt, and China. Um, and also these countries were even better than France, for example, um, because they were selling their stuff for really cheap. Um, and so particularly Brazil, Brazil is probably the most important country other than France and the Soviet Union, as far as the Iraqi military and military industry was concerned. Um, and this, this relationship started in 1976 when, um, the Brazilian like manufacturing group, uh, Engesa, I believe is how it's pronounced, um, signed a $836 million deal for 150 Cascavel armored cars and 150 Urutu scout cars, as well as more than 2,000 other trucks and uh, transportation vehicles, like logistical equipment. Um, and these, uh, and they would continue selling um, kind of more, like the less sexy equipment, like trucks and mechanized vehicles um, for the duration of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> the Soviets are kind of looking back down on Iraq and thinking like, oh shit, we're missing out on a lot of cash right now. And uh, so in 1976, they signed a deal. Uh, they reopened um, arms sales to Iraq and sold uh, MiG-23 fighter jets, which was at the time the most advanced um, that the Soviets had. It's the, uh, I think it was the first Soviets, uh, what's it called, like variable wing geometry, kind of like the F-14, um, where the wings can like rotate adjusting to adjust for like speed and stuff. So it was kind of pretty cool, very advanced. Um, and so they sold 100 of those or 130 of those to Iraq. And then also, more importantly, they agreed to train Iraqis on maintaining and uh, like building replacement parts and stuff for the, the equipment they sold. So and now then, they have the most advanced Russian jet and the most advanced French jet at the same time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just two years after that, they would sign another deal for $3 billion at the time, which was the largest uh, deal in Iraqi history at the time, um, in which they they started delivering the MiG-23s as well as they sold um, Scud B ballistic missiles, IL-76 transport planes, MI-8 transport helicopters, 9K-32 Strela um, shoulder-launched uh, anti-air missiles, um, as well as the MiG-25 interceptor, which the MiG-25 is cool because that was the uh, the um, the Soviet jet that got it had like a cruising speed of like Mach three or something like that, and an altitude of like eighty thousand feet. It was kind of what they used to kind of counter the SR-75 um, scout plane, and uh, it's this it's basically two enormous engines with a tiny little cockpit, um, and they sold those to Iraq as well. It uh, doesn't seem like I, uh, Iraq would have much of a reason to own those if they're solely used and manufactured to cover the <laughs> Blackbird. Well, I mean, 
Well, yeah, you're not wrong. They they didn't end up really being all that useful for Iraq. I think in order to just kind of prove just how far the tables had turned with regards to the relationship between the Soviet Union and uh, and the Iraqis, um, in uh, April of 1978, the uh, Saddam ordered the Soviets to move their embassy in Baghdad because he believed that they were using the fact that it was very close to the presidential palace to spy on him with like you know, long range microphones or something like that. I mean, they probably were. I mean, (laughs) he probably wasn't wrong, but nonetheless, uh, this was very much a power move, uh, because the Soviets of course refused and, uh, Saddam, uh, immediately cut off their water and electricity supplies. (laughs) (laughs) And the Soviets moved their embassy like three days later. Um, so when, when discussing the contact of uh, the, the concept of BDE uh, or Big Dick Energy, I believe <laughs> we may have to concede that Saddam Hussein had BDE. Saddam Hussein, Big Dick Energy originator. <laughs> Perhaps he even invented the concept. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm saying that in Kurdistan, so I expect the Asayesh to kick down my door. Any second. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, they moved their embassy and the Soviets were pretty much, by this point, they were no longer the, the key figure when it comes to Iraqi, uh, the Iraqi military industry. In fact, they're in the beginning of the 1970s there, they had 95% of the Iraqi arms industry, like, or share of the Iraqi arms industry or Iraqi arms purchases. By 1979, they were down to 63%. So they're still pretty important, of course. Um, the Iraqi army still ran on, you know, T-55s and AK-47s. But the uh, a lot of the the most important things that the the Iraqis had developed over the last decade were those kind of self-sufficiency things. So if the the Soviets immediately withdrew their support as they had with the during the Kurdish war. Um, the Iraqis would be able to pick up the slack either with other countries selling them weapons or with their own production capabilities. And similarly, if you, uh, for the Americans in the audience, don't think that you're innocent either, because in January of 1980, uh, the General Electric Company sold a number of ship engines, uh, which were intended for Italian-made frigates that the, so, uh, the Iraqis were going to buy for an $11 million deal. And the first deal that the Iraqis were to make with the United States. Similarly, the Bell Helicopter Company sold a number of um, transport helicopters. I don't know if you could hear the the quotation marks (laughs) around transport because they were painted like tan and had mounts on the side of the fuselage for things like um, transporting rockets into the enemy's tanks. Um, they're just humanitarian and, supplies is all <laughs> yeah humanitarian machine guns and humanitarian missiles um, of course yes um however um the u.s pretended to have a conscience and the deals were blocked by the senate because iraq was at the time labeled a supporter of international terrorism however the carter administration overruled this decision and allowed the deal to go through and uh, while the United States would never have quite the same sh- uh, importance with regards to arms sales, sales to Iraq as some of the other countries would, um, this relationship between the Americans and the Iraqis would continue until 
1990 with the invasion of Kuwait. Um, so as on the dawn of the uh, Iran-Iraq war, on the dawn of Iraq's invasion, the Iraqi army uh, of 1980 was significantly different from that of 1968. In fact, um, shortly before the invasion, an Iraqi representative at a UN conference on science and technology in Vienna declared that Iraq would establish an arms industry capable of full self, self-reliance and, secu- and uh, sufficiency and security for both Iraq and the Arab world by the year 2000. And uh, the army and the military industry to match it had indeed grown substantially. In fact, the Iraqi army was up to about 190,000 active duty soldiers and 250,000 in reserve from just 90,000 in 1968. And the 1979 defense bill was $5.1 billion, up from $250 million in 1968. And uh, Iraq could count on its suppliers, Brazil, China, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, West Germany, Egypt, France, the United Kingdom, Hungary, Italy, Jordan, Libya, Poland, Romania, Spain, Switzerland, the Soviet Union, and the United States. And uh, they now had thousands of tanks, mostly T-54s, T-55s, and T-62s. But also things like French AMX 30s um, and a couple of other ma- models and makes, and um, about 2,000 APCs or other armored fighting vehicles of Soviet and Brazilian make, as well as hundreds of artillery pieces um, and plenty of uh, anti tank missiles from France. Um, they also were starting to receive deliveries of the Soviet Union's latest and most advanced tank, the uh, T 72. Which, um, if once they started receiving it, they, that would make it the most advanced tank in the region. Um, and uh, they also had in the sky in their air force twelve Tu twenty two supersonic jet bombers, um, eighty Mig twenty threes, sixty Su sevens, thirty Su twenties, uh, and one hundred and fifteen Mig twenty ones. And they were starting to receive the delivery of their Mirage F ones from France. However, those wouldn't really become relevant um, during their early days of the uh, of the war. And um, at the same time, perhaps even more importantly than all those fancy new weapons they had bought, they, uh, Iraqi factories within Iraq were producing pretty much all of Iraq's small arms, uh, mostly Kalashnikov rifles like AK-47s um, and like SVD sniper rifles and PKM machine guns as well as RPG-7s, various pistols, um, as well as aircraft bombs, heavy machine guns, and uh, 23 and 30 millimeter cannons, fuel air bombs, mines, and so on, and of course ammunition to fuel all of the above. I mean, you can um, hardly blame them for sticking <laughs> to those uh, frames. Those, If, if yeah. they didn't get involved in like three incredibly destructive wars, <laughs> those tanks would still be working today. And some of them still are. Yeah. Um, the T-72s that Iraq bought, those are still in the Iraqi army uh, today. I don't think they're still using any of the T-55s or T-62s, um, but the T-72s are, T-72s are still in use for sure. And of course, like the AKs and the RPGs and stuff, those never go out of style. Now those will be in those will be in people's <laughs> hands long after everybody listening to this is dead. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, but um, I think in order to give context to where the Iraqi army is at the time. We have to briefly discuss where the Iranian army was at the time, because that, by this point, by 1980, that's Iraq's chief rival. They've suppressed the Kurds. 
they are kind of putting Israel on the back burner and they really want that oil in Khuzestan. So the Iranian army, at least before the revolution, had over 400,000 soldiers in it and was one of the best funded and best equipped in the world. They were the best American customer. So good, in fact, that Iran was the only country allowed to buy the brand new F-14 Tomcat fighter jet made famous by Top Gun. Um, and uh, the only one, and that, that aircraft at the time was considered probably the most advanced, most powerful fighter aircraft in the world. Um, and the Iranians were the only ones allowed to buy it. They also had like F-4 Phantom jets and uh, lots and lots of M-60 tanks and uh, from the U.S. and Chieftain tanks from the U.K., uh, the chieftain never really saw any use except by Iran, um, but it was it was a pretty advanced tank. I think the chieftain was the first tank to use the uh, the um, the Chabam armor, which was like the uh, what's the what's the word? It's like the laminate armor. It's not just pure steel. Oh, the composite it, armor. Yeah, composite. That's the word. Um, and so it it was pretty advanced at the time as well. And the uh, the Iranians had eight hundred and seventy of them. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Iranian army was really well equipped right before the revolution. However, immediately after the revolution, it was very much in question how much of that, how much of those soldiers and how much of that equipment would actually be able to fight in a real war. And so that's kind of what the Iraqis were uh, betting on when they launched their invasion. Um, and they weren't wrong. Not entirely, at least. So they invaded and... Uh, I believe it was like September 20th or something, 1980. Um, and the Soviets, as if on cue, immediately cut off all their support um, of military equipment to Iraq. But the Iraqis didn't really care because by this point they had enough of their own manufacturing and were buying from enough other sources for it to have little effect um, on the, the war effort. And the initial invasion... Um, was spearheaded by a lot of Iraqi tanks, mostly T-55s and T-62s at this point. Um, but they were they were definitely outnumbering the Iranian tanks and definitely had the element of surprise and absolutely had the element uh, or the advantage in terms of planning and cohesiveness of their military. But, as I'm sure will be covered in episodes two and three, this didn't really help anyway. <laughs> no, uh, not so much. <laughs> Yeah, so the invasion pretty much immediately bogged down, um, both on the land and in the air. So the interesting thing about the air battle was that, unlike on the ground, the Iraqi Air Force, despite buying a lot of brand new equipment from the USSR and France, still didn't really have an advantage. And that was mostly geographic, because um, Tehran is something like a thousand miles, or no, not a thousand miles, a thousand kilometers away from the Iraqi border, and it's over a huge mountain range. So the uh, the Soviet or the 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 Iraqis uh, attempted to launch like a crippling airstrike with their Tu-22 supersonic bombers, but it didn't really work out very well. And on also the Iranian Air Force was even after the revolution had better equipment and their pilots were much more experienced and better trained than the Iraqis. At least once the Iranian government let them out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, they were able to shoot down a lot of Iraqi airplanes. And honestly, from day one, the uh, the Iraqis were kind of on the back foot um, in the air war because their their aircraft weren't quite good enough. And the Iranians had a huge geographical advantage. And uh, 
perhaps even more embarrassingly with regards to their equipment and the level of training the Iraqis had. During the start of the war, the Iraqis tried to use a lot of helicopters, but Iraqi air defense guys on the ground had a habit of shooting them down a lot. <laughs> uh, and so the, the, they instituted a policy where if Iraqi helicopters were in operation in that particular theater, all air defense had to be shut down. Um, which, of course, had the consequence of allowing Iranian helicopters and aircraft free reign. Um, there was one anecdote I read during my, my research where this Iraqi general was doing reconnaissance on a hilltop and he saw a couple of Iranian um, uh, Cobra helicopters flying in low and really close and attacking Iraqi positions. And he called into air defense artillery and was like, hey, like, why aren't you shooting these guys down? And the guys responded back that, well, they were under orders to not fire their weapons because there were Iraqi helicopters somewhere. <laughs> so, the uh, despite this enormous equipment advantage that the Iraqis had going right into the war, it didn't really pay off very well. And uh, so, as the war grinds on, it quickly becomes this very like attritional meat grinder for both sides. And uh, even within the first year or two, the Iraqis have basically exhausted most of their initial tanks, uh, like tank um, arsenal. And um, so both sides, but especially the Iraqis, are trying to immediately fill the gaps in their armored divisions with whatever they can find. And because the Soviets have stopped selling, they turn to Warsaw Pact states and China. Poland ships 250 T-72s to Iraq in 1982, and China, which produced at the time several um, kind of not quite copies of the T-54 and T-55 um, which they labeled the Type 59 and the Type 69. Nice. Um, they. Uh, I see what they did there. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, they knew what was up, and uh, so they started selling these tanks to Iraq and Iran, but mostly Iraq. So by the end of the war, the Chinese would actually sell something like two to three thousand of these tanks to Iraq, mostly Type 55, um, Type 69s. Um, and in fact, these tanks were so cheap that Iraqi tank crews, if the if they threw a track or the engine broke down or they got damaged during battle, they would just abandon it and not even bother to take it back for repair because it was cheaper <laughs> to just buy a new one um, than to have it repaired. That's insane. And it's it's pretty crazy, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, at the same time, some of the other equipment that um, the Iraqis bought particularly from France with regards to electronic warfare equipment, was starting to have an impact on the battlefield. Now, I know basically nothing about electronic warfare, um, so I'm not going to go into too much detail on that um, beyond stating that for any electronic warfare nerds in the crowd, you you were here too. Um, but yeah, so the equipment that the Iraqis were mostly using was tanks, rifles, artillery, and so on. But... Um, Saddam didn't want to stop there. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, they had begun production on a nuclear reactor in the western desert of Iraq uh, in the 1970s, um, sold to them by the French. In, I believe, 1981, the Israeli Air Force bombed that reactor and completely destroyed it. And uh, from that point on, the Saddam basically just shelved the nuclear, his nuclear ambitions. It's too expensive... It's too um, 
kind of politically difficult for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, also he was in the middle of a war that ended up being a lot more difficult and a lot costlier than he had expected. And uh, the other, the, the easiest kind of uh, weapon of mass destruction to produce is chemical weapons. And for a country like Iraq, which had a massive oil industry, they also had a legitimate excuse to build chemical plants because the refining process for oil requires a bunch of pretty nasty chemicals. And uh, so pretty much from the get-go of the war, they were looking to start building chemical weapons plants. And uh, so in uh, 1981, the West German company thiessen Reinstahl Technology began a pesticide began construction on a pesticide plant in Suwaira, which is south of Baghdad, which would be capable of producing about 4,000 tons a year of phosphate chemical weapons precursor. Um, I'm sure they only meant that for farming purposes. Oh, I'm about to get to that. (laughs) (laughs) Farming Uh, bodies. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, And so while Thyssen Reinstahl officially denies knowledge of the plant's actual use, um, obviously this claim is, uh, well... Politely, highly suspect and impolitely complete bullshit because the layout of the plant did not at all fit a standard pesticide plant model. It was too small to be useful for like an actual pesticide plant and also had a lot of like, you know, armed guard posts and bunkers and things like that, which aren't normal in um, a pesticide plant. Yeah, you see those Uh, everywhere in like, you know, Nebraska where they use tons of pesticides. (laughs) They definitely have T-55s at the, you know... The chemical plant outside the city in what's the capital of Nebraska? Uh, Omaha, L- Lincoln, one of those two. I don't know. I Lincoln think those are cities in Nebraska, but yeah, yeah you know they've it. got T55s just at all the plants out there. Um, but also they they weren't just limited to Thyssen Reinstahl. They uh, they were also negotiating with um, Carl Kolb GmbH, and I believe GmbH stands for Gesundheitsbereit Hoffens of genocide um i don't know very much german but uh so this is a west german chemical company and their salesman in iraq klaus franzel helmut meyer and hans von auschwitz uh not literally but basically they're all nazis <laughs> like unironically they were nazis well i mean um, if you're gonna buy chemical weapons you're gonna go to the experts i mean they knew what, what they were doing and yeah. uh so yeah they were meeting with the uh, iran iraq's um uh, like military industry, particularly this guy, Amir al-Saadi, who was their head of like their kind of W&D program at the time. And uh, they began working on plans for a enormous chemical weapons plant in Samara, which is north of Baghdad. And if, again, officially the plant would be for pesticides, but Franzel and Mayer um, obviously knew exactly what the real purpose of this plant was. And by extension, Carl Kolb did as well. Um, and so this plant was enormous. It was over 200 square kilometers um yeah kilometers <laughs> that's and uh, fucking massive yeah that's like the size of oh, like a mid-sized city i think um and uh but i mean in this chemical weapons plant's defense um it wasn't all like concentrated it was deliberately designed to be very spread out so it's not easy to destroy in one like bombing raid and uh, and it was full of hardened bunkers and underground production lines and so on and this plant would be um, producing weapons by, or chemical weapons by 1983. Um, and this plant would produce mustard gas, sarin gas, and taboon. 
Tabun. I'm not sure how to say that, but some pretty gnarly stuff. And this, their chemical weapons would start going, being put into use pretty much immediately after they rolled off the production line in 1984, I believe, um, during the Battle of Majnun Island. And initially, they, uh, their chemical weapons weren't particularly potent. Uh, the Iraqis say they had a 20% fatality rate, while the Iranians say that it was probably a little bit lower than that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they quickly readjusted their mixture um, of chemical, of like the particular chemicals in a particular uh, piece of ordnance. And um, by 1985, they were probably up to roughly a 60% fatality rate. Wow. And the thing with, yeah, the thing with chemical weapons is that they're pro, like, even during this war, when they were used on a large scale, they were more of a psychological weapon than they were, um, like a practical weapon to like kill as many people as possible. Oh, oh yeah. Like they could, yeah. Like they could probably kill a similar amount of people with like, you know, conventional artillery or bombs or something like that. But the, the level of fear that, is instilled on a like a line of defenses when the chemical weapons start coming in is probably even more effective than just you know killing them outright with explosives. Right. Um, and it, I mean the the idea of being blinded and having your skin blister and and explode off of you or watching your friend drown in their own lung juices is significantly not, more terrifying than just getting atomized <laughs> out of existence by an artillery shell. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, so from that point on, the Iraqis would be consistently using chemical weapons through the end of the war. Um, but they weren't they weren't stopping at chemical weapons. Um, they also began a plan to produce their own long range ballistic missiles. Um, so between 1982 and 1986, pretty much everyone thought the war was in kind of a perpetual stalemate. Um, the Iraqis didn't hold any significant territory in Iran and the Iranians didn't hold any significant territory in Iraq and nobody really thought anything was going to change. Um, most countries were still selling, you know, a a little bit of stuff to Iraq, but the war wasn't really in full swing at the time, or at least they didn't think so. And so there wasn't a whole lot of urgency, um, either on the side of the Iraqis or on the various countries arming them. Um, but during this time, the Iraqis began a pretty substantial campaign of terror bombing of Iranian cities, mostly with ballistic missiles. And at the time, they, they had the short-range stuff, like the Scuds, which I think have a range of about 300 kilometers. Um, so those couldn't hit Tehran. They could only hit the cities closer to the border um, with Iraq, like Khorramshahr. Uh, um, the cities that they've already attacked and... Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't really... I mean, they were scary and they killed a lot of people, but it wasn't um, nearly as effective as they wanted it to be. And so in order to expand their ballistic missile program to be more effective, they turned to a pretty unlikely partner, Argentina. Um, Didn't see that one so coming. I, <laughs> neither did I. <laughs> so the, the, the military junta in Argentina had actually had a nuclear program prior to the Falklands War. Um, and they were developing a long-range ballistic missile program in conjunction, which they called the Condor program. And surprise, surprise, they were being helped by the West Germans, uh, the, specifically the company of Messerschmitt Volkov Blom, or MBB, and the Italian defense company SNIA. So just think about you know where the Nazis went after World War II. 
and uh, those countries are now helping Iraq. And the yeah. same companies, too. And it's <laughs> so called the Condor <laughs> Program. Yeah. So you see, you see the roots uh, in, of the – it's Nazi roots – all the way through the 1980s, and uh, so yeah, so the and also of course the French were involved because they were involved in everything in this sordid affair, um, and Saddam wasn't really too concerned with the fact that the Argentines were under a lot of international scrutiny at the time because the Falklands War had just ended, and uh, but he wasn't intending to buy the Argentine missiles, merely acquire the techno like the technological capabilities and then incorporate those into his own ballistic missile program. Um, and, uh, simultaneously in order to, but I mean, a ballistic missile program is super expensive. And so they needed the free cash to do this. And by this point, their, their finances are getting a little tight and they've got a lot of debt. Um, but the Americans, you know, they're, they come in to save the day by, uh, giving the Iraqis $1 billion a year in food aid. Uh, yeah. Pineapples. <laughs> grenades <laughs> yes well it was just cash however it was cash that the iraqis desperately needed in order to free up resources to buy things like long-range ballistic missile technology or chemical right. weapons i think because i think um, at this point in the war the iraqis were spending something like 75 to 80 percent of their gdp on their military absolutely so like yeah. the u.s was just kind of like paying their home bills so they could just keep spending <laughs> everything at weapons basically yeah so this deal comes through in 1984 at the exact same time that uh i think it was march of 84 roughly um that this is the exact same time that iraq first started using massive chemical weapons bombardments on iranian positions on majnoon island and the american ambassador to iraq at the time um, was fully aware of Iraq's usage of chemical weapons. The official position was that they never knew, but of course that's complete BS. Um, they knew exactly what was going on. And uh, the American ambassador said something along the lines of um, the, uh, the Iraqi use of chemical weapons was like a necessary evil or something like that because they considered their re friendly relationship with Saddam Hussein to be more important than his usage of chemical weapons. I'm sure glad he wouldn't end up looking fucking stupid in like 15 years. <laughs> Less than six years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, we're going to get to, there's going to be another example a little bit later on that's similarly scary, uh, or at least kind of darkly ironic. Um, so anyway, uh, the Iraqis began production on a massive missile <laughs> research and production facility called the Saad 16 facility outside of Mosul. And involved in this are 38 West German and Austrian companies, as well as hundreds of European engineers and thousands of Iraqi security personnel and Iraqi engineers and technicians. Um, so this is we're now getting to around 1986. And uh, in, I believe, February of 1986, the Iranians launch uh, a pretty major offensive seizing the southern Iraqi peninsula of Fao which basically cut off the Iraqi access to the Persian Gulf and routed some of Iraq's largest and most important units. And a lot of people started to get scared that the Iranians were actually going to win this thing, uh, which nobody in the West and not even the Soviet Union wanted. Um, and so it was at this point where things really went into high gear. 
um, the Soviets immediately provided a enormous $9 billion arms deal um, to the Iraqis in 1986, which included more than 2,000 tanks and which included 800 T-72s, 300 fighter aircraft, 300 surface-to-surface ballistic missiles, mostly SCUDs, and thousands of pieces of heavy artillery and armored personnel vehicles. Um, the Chinese also came in. The French came in. Basically, the whole gang was here selling weapons. And um, by 1988, in Iraq's eventual counteroffensive that routed Iranian forces and ended the war, Iraq had in its arsenal 4,500 Soviet T-55, T-62, and T-72 tanks, as well as 1,500 Type 69 Chinese tanks for a total of, what is that, 6,000 tanks. Um which is it's a lot of tanks. That's pretty ridiculous. That how how big of an asshole do you have to be <laughs> to make China, the Soviet Union, and the U.S. all work together <laughs> to try to stop you from winning a war? Um, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hesitate to say that Khomeini was a bigger asshole than Saddam at this time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's certainly to, arguable. <laughs> You have to piss off a lot of the wrong people. Yeah. Um, and the Iranians had managed to do that, rightly or wrongly, with their revolution. Um, I, I always <laughs> kind of unfairly, fairly compare this to the French Revolution, where like uh-huh. a whole bunch of people yeah. who had nothing in common banded together to try to kill it in its womb. <laughs> and, yeah, it's pretty similar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I guess Khomeini doesn't go get to... Uh, like a baby exiled at St. Helena to die in uh, ignominy. No. Instead, he had a kick-ass funeral. So, yeah, Instead, yeah, he, he fought World War One Two, the electric boogaloo, <laughs> and, and kept his independence. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he was more successful than Napoleon. <sighs> yeah, hot I guess take, so. Hot I mean, take alert. <laughs> at least he got to die in his throne. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, honestly. Um, so, but yeah, uh, the uh, this counteroffensive um, required not just a lot of new equipment being bought from the Soviets and the Chinese, but also they needed to reform the Iraqi military industry. And Saddam had just the man for the job. Um, in January of 1987, he handed control of the State Organization of, for Technical Industries, which was the branch, the branch of the Ministry of Defense, which was responsible for arms production and arms procurement, to Hussein Kamel who was Saddam's cousin and his former bodyguard. And this was probably the one time in history where nepotism really worked out. Because <laughs> uh, this guy, he knew what he was doing. And uh, under Camel's tenure at the at SOTI, the State Organization for Technical Industries, the efficient, efficient, eh, efficiency and capacity of Iraq's military industry greatly increased. Um, and... The bureaucratic red tape that existed, Camel just cut right through. And he was really, really good at going from the conception of a particular project to the production of that project in record time. And in fact, he is quoted as saying, uh, because of the war, all of us were in a hurry and this allowed us to cut red tape. For instance, we performed no feasibility studies in the normal sense. Because we are all fighters, we know the end use of our weapons. Sometimes a simple telephone call between a military user and myself can get the process going. While some of us work on building a prototype, others begin designing production tools, etc. So, uh, in a 1988 um, 
His organization was combined with the Ministry of Heavy Industry and Military Production to form the least intimidating but probably sca- least intimidating sounding but scariest and actual uh, reality organization, the Ministry of Industrialization and Military Industrialization, or MIMI. <laughs> and uh, so that put this guy, Hussein Kamel, in charge of the entire Iraqi industrial apparatus, as well as most of its oil industry. And obviously its military production. And uh, so his plan as the head of Mimi uh, had two prongs. The first was uh, to build the kind of the basic sustainment equipment for the army. So local assembly of tanks and spare parts, rifles, ammunition, boots, etc. This would replenish Iraq's depleted stocks of equipment and ammunition. And uh, this would be done almost entirely by Iraqi industry and Iraqi engineers and technicians. Um, And the second prong was to build long-range ballistic missiles that could reach cities such as Tehran and destroy Iranian civilian morale. This would be accomplished quite successfully. As in 1986, the Soviets had sold them 300 Scud B tactical ballistic missiles, which are with a range of about 300 kilometers. However, the range to Tehran is 900 kilometers, so they needed to figure out a way to turn these missiles, um, basically make them turbocharged to go three times their normal distance. And in order to do this, they signed a deal with Brazil and France, um, the, the usual suspects. And uh, they shipped these um, a couple of examples of these missiles to Brazil, where they were disassembled by Iraqi, Brazilian, and French engineers and reverse engineered. And um, they were able to modify them successfully in order to launch and hit targets more than 900 kilometers away. In order to do this, they had to like repurpose parts from some of the missiles. So they ended up cutting down their arsenal from 300 to 200, but that was more than enough. Their first missile, with a range of 900 kilometers, they dubbed the Al-Hussein. Of course. Um, and the second missile, they call it, which with a range of, I think, closer to 1,000 kilometers, they dubbed the Abbas missile. And these are basically the two names that they would use for all of their equipment. <laughs> uh, they weren't particularly creative when it came to naming their things. Yeah. Saddam really <laughs> liked him some, some, some Saddam. Oh, yeah, he did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But now we're going to get to probably the craziest part of the whole story. Um, If you didn't think any of the previous stuff was crazy enough, I have the story for you. And we're going to talk about Gerald, I can never pronounce the name correctly, Gerald Bull and Project Babylon. Oh, I love the story. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. So a little bit of background. There's this guy, Gerald Bull. He was a Canadian engineer, um, kind of your quintessential mad scientist, eccentric genius. Um, In college, he knocked down the walls of his advising professor's office in order to make room for a wind tunnel. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then when he got out of his PhD program, he worked for the Canadian military who were at the time designing, attempting to create their own independence from kind of the United States or or UK's military industry. And so they were going to design a anti-air missile called the Velvet Glove. And Gerald Bull was kind of, he took the lead on the project, but he got incredibly frustrated with the Canadian government 
and um, eventually quit. And at the same time, he was developing a very bizarre fascination that I think is probably unique to this guy in all of history. And that is he wanted to put a satellite into space with a cannon. Uh, because I, he I mean, <laughs> I can kind of understand why he was upset with the Canadian government because he's working on a project that was trying to build the velvet glove. <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, I'm starting to think that he was like, but have we tried putting more cannons on it? Um, that's basically exactly what happened. <laughs> um, his, his idea, and he's probably not 100% wrong, was that using rocket boosters to put satellites was too expensive. And if you just shoot it out of a cannon, it's going to be a lot cheaper. But, um, you know, it's not a bad idea, I guess, in concept. But he was obsessed with it. He was absolutely obsessed with it. And everything in his life from that point forward was in some way related to getting funding in order to do his testing. Now, he did a little bit of testing with um, funding from McGill University and the U.S. Navy, where he took an old like battleship cannon um, and put it in Barbados and pointed it up. And uh, fired a couple. <laughs> Honestly, that's the kind of science that would have gotten me out of history and into engineering. <laughs> we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Um, but yeah, he, it actually there was some promise in his idea, and that's why he got a little bit of funding. But eventually, the funding ran out, and uh, he was kind of left uh, left the drift, as it were. And uh, but. He uh, kind of on the back of a napkin designed the GC-45 155mm artillery cannon and a, a accompanying 155mm shell to fire from this gun. This gun, the GC-45, put literally every other artillery cannon ever designed to shame. So he basically accidentally built the best cannon ever um, on the back of a napkin. Um, he then sold this design uh, to a number of company, uh, entities, particularly the Austrian company Voest Alpine, which would then begin to produce the, the, that particular gun under the name of the GHN-45. Um, this gun made a pretty serious impact. It ended up in the hands of apartheid South Africa, for which Gerald Bull was put in prison um, for <laughs> breaking uh, the, same, the arms embargo on South Africa. Although, honestly, it wasn't entirely his fault. He did ask the Carter government whether or not he could sell them and they basically said yes. And then, he, or no, I think it was the, I, I forget the 70s presidents, but one administration basically said yes. And the next administration was uh, trying to be harsh on apartheid South Africa. And so they put him in jail. Um, but I mean, also it was apartheid South Africa. You probably shouldn't have sold guns to them in the first place just for moral reasons. But anyway, he yeah, did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, f I feel like we're, we're expecting a lot of morals off of from you know from a guy who invented a space cannon on, <laughs> on the back of a bar napkin pretty much yeah but anyway this gun was pretty pretty effective it was uh once it was put into south african use the uh the soviets noticed it because they were backing um the angolan communist forces who the south africans were fighting against which honestly the angolan civil wars could probably be its own series of episodes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I can't. <laughs> I can't ignore uh, a blood diamond war that involved rebels getting jet fighters and shit. Yeah, I mean it was Cuba versus apartheid South Africa. I mean, how crazy is that? And who do you root for? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like that meme from uh, the Godzilla movie where the guy's like, "Let them fight." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
But uh, so yeah, so a number of these GC45 cannons end up in both the arsenals of Iraq and Iran, and uh, they're incredible high quality ended up catching the attention of Hussein Kamel's organization. And in November of 1987, he placed a call to Gerard Bull's offices in Brussels, Belgium. Soon after, uh, Gerald Bull and his sons, who were his business partners and associates, which didn't work out quite as well for him as it did for Saddam, flew to Baghdad in order to meet with uh, Iraqi officials, particularly Hussein Kamel. There, they, de- they discussed a partnership to develop an indigenous family of art- Iraqi artillery based around Bull's designs and to also provide assistance in further developing Iraq's industrial and engineering capabilities. However, most interesting to Bull was Camel's insistence on eventually putting Iraqi satellites in orbit. Um, Bull, of course, jumped on this opportunity and brought up his supergun idea, and Camel, who knew that Saddam really wanted a uniquely Iraqi prestige project, was very excited about the supergun idea. And uh, they eventually allotted the project $25 million, and Gerald Bull's company dubbed it Project 839. The... Iraqis would give it a much cooler name, namely Project Babylon. And uh, they began construction on a 100-meter-long artillery cannon. Uh, That is like, what, 320 feet long, I think? And it had a bore of, I believe, 10 feet. Jesus. Um, Yeah. They would never finish it, but they did build a baby Babylon, which was, I believe, 30 meters long. So still about 100 feet long with a bore of like five feet or something like that and tested it a few times, I believe. Um, But yeah, so this this guy, Gerald Bull, was pretty deep into the Iraqi arms industry by the end of the war. Yeah, I can imagine how he sold this to Saddam. He's like, you know, I got this idea for a space cannon. And Saddam's <laughs> like, you know, I like big guns as much as the next guy, but this sounds pretty fucking stupid. And Gerald's <laughs> like, I'll name it the Saddam cannon. And Saddam's <laughs> like, when, do you, when can you start? <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's pretty much what happened. Um, that's kind of how a lot of people ended up selling things to Saddam. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so unfortunately or fortunately... None of uh, Bull's input um, really had much effect on the end of the war itself because by the time he was starting to, um, you know, draw draw up designs for various guns, be they artillery pieces or space cannons, the war was pretty much over. Um, so the war ended in kind of over the summer of 1988. And um, in order to do this, the Iraqis produced enormous quantities of arms and ammunition in order to eventually route Iraqi forces or sorry, Iranian forces and force a ceasefire or, and then an eventual peace agreement. Um, so the war ended in, I believe August of 1988 officially. And, uh, but that's not quite where the story ends. We still got about a year and a half to go before really finishing off the story. And that, will involve kind of one last really crazy thing. So after the war, the Iraqi arms industry was really in full swing. They did not uh, reduce spending um, on military procurement after the war ended. (laughs) So even though they were no longer fighting anybody, they were still spending tens of billions of dollars a year on producing 
uh, new equipment, buying new um, weapons and building new factories and chemical plants and things like that. Um, the military industry employed over 100,000 people. And by this point, they had probably the best educated workforce in the entire Arab world because they had spent billions expanding the university system in order to get Iraqi engineers into engineering in order to build guns. Um, then they were also starting to do licensed assembly and production of T-55s and T-72 tanks. Um, in fact, they even modified the T-72 with a uh, Chinese electro-optical dazzler active protection system, uh, which was similar. I don't know if you know about the, the Stora. The, um, was, it's basically, um, they designed it so if you fire a laser-guided missile at the tank, it'll point at the laser and... Um, disrupt it so the missile just goes off and blows up oh um and so they bought um they bought some of these from china and were installing them on their t-72s um in fact i think the russians were kind of the first to do active protection systems they had one in 19 the 1970s on t-55s actually but it never really went into major production and they sold it's called the drawsd aps and they they didn't. They sold them to China and a unidentified Middle Eastern customer, which was probably Iraq, because um, I don't really know who else would would have bought it at the time. But anyway, yeah, they were producing a lot of stuff by the end of the war. They in November of 1988 they unveiled the Fal-1 anti-tactical ballistic missile, which was a a missile designed locally and produced mis locally to shoot down ballistic missiles fired at Iraq. Um, they were also producing the Walid long-range ballistic missile, um, which was based off the Argentine Condor system. Uh, they were also producing the Majnun 155mm self-propelled howitzer and the 210mm FAO self-propelled howitzer, uh, which fired a 200-kilogram shell over 40 kilometers. That's uh, nuts. They liked their big guns, yeah. And they were also producing a number of rocket artillery systems and other uh, like licensed production of Soviet 122-millimeter howitzers. Um, they also, on December 7th of 1989, they test launched the Tammuz rocket, which was capable of putting satellites in orbit or firing a guided missile up to 3000 kilometers. But it wasn't a cannon. It was not a cannon. <laughs> and so Gerard Bolt did not care about it. And Saddam probably didn't care about it either. <laughs> uh, there's actually an interesting footnote to the whole Gerard Bolt story. And that oh, yeah. was uh, in 1990, he was assassinated by the Mossad. Oh, yeah, I was going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently his space gun was more grounded in reality than we gave him credit for. Honestly, I think it was. Um, I, I, know, I think the U.S. briefly toyed with um, testing similar concepts after his death. But I think ultimately no one's really quite crazy enough to do it for real and give it what it really deserves. Because, I mean, if they did end up producing it it wouldn't just be able to put satellites in orbit it could also put shells in tel aviv um, yeah and that reminds me exactly to uh what about a, a month ago now where the u.s army came out with uh, uh their plan to come up with an artillery piece that could fire like a thousand kilometers <laughs> that's like so space cannon oh All my right. God. yeah what are you gonna do with that <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah but basically by like late 1989 the iraqis were producing pretty much everything they would need as well as a lot of stuff they really didn't need um and uh 
the only thing they weren't building at the time was aircraft, but they were even trying to um, amend that lacking. So they signed a deal with our old friends, the French, to license assemble 60 Mirage 2000s, which is the newest um, French fighter jet, which I believe came out in the mid-80s, um, as well as license production of uh, 60 Alpha Jet trainers. Um, and this would be a, I think it was like a $10 billion deal, deal or something like that. Um, and once they finished the like local assembly or production of these aircraft, they would be able to like build their own aircraft industry on top of that expertise gained and then produce their own Iraqi aircraft. So Saddam was pretty proud of what he had built and he kind of wanted to show it off a little bit. And so between April 28th and May 1st of 1989, he hosted a massive arms exposition in Baghdad, which he called the first Baghdad international exhibition for military production in which over a hundred companies from dozens of countries showed up. And I love this. Uh, the motto of this expo was defense equipment for peace and prosperity. <clears throat> of course. Which, uh, definitely doesn't sound like a, uh, you know, oxymoron. And that's definitely not something that, um, Saddam Hussein should ever say. <laughs> no, but, um, to kind of, really underscore the 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 cynicism the greed and the violence of the whole iraqi military industry and the various companies that and countries that helped build it uh, the whole expo opened with a pretty shocking incident of, of violence in which um an egyptian alpha jet aircraft or sorry an alpha jet aircraft piloted by an egyptian pilot was going to be shown at the the expo and it was coming into land at the airport, which was where the expo was occurring, but they miscalculated the flight path and they strayed slightly too close to the presidential palace where there were many anti-aircraft guns manned by the Republican guard. Oh God. And they immediately shot down the aircraft. <laughs> uh, the pilot and co-pilot were able to eject and survive, but the jet crashed into a civilian neighborhood and killed dozens of people. Yeah. That so, might be the most Saddam way to begin anything. Yeah, that's kind of kind of what I'm thinking. It's just unnecessarily violent and brutal, all for no purpose whatsoever. Okay, everybody, welcome to my second book launch. <laughs> now, if you pay attention, I'm going to unleash this tiger into the local elementary school. <laughs> Honestly, the more you read about, like, especially his sons, Uday oh my and God. Husay, like, They're fucking nuts. Yeah. Did you see the movie, um, The Devil's Double? Yes. Yes. Yeah, fantastic movie. Or at least it was before I studied the Middle East. I, I haven't watched it since, but yeah. it was pretty good back then. It may not hold up, but I was, it's, it's worth a watch, I think. I was really hoping for uh, an excuse to talk about Uday and Kusei during this series because <laughs> they're, they're so like snidely whiplash evil. Oh, yeah. That, they're, they're messed up. Yeah, and you know when, when you study history, it's like you can't call anybody outright evil because you have to put them in the context of their time and like you know yeah. i i understand why they did x y and z but it's like oh no these guys were born around the same time i was and they're fucking terrible people yeah absolutely yeah um the more i hear about particularly uday like it's just it's just depressing like it stops being like you can't even laugh at it like from a like haha they were so crazy kind of way like they were just fucked up like right but um but anyway like at the expo a lot of the iraqi 
stuff on display was kind of crude or literally just shells that like were pretending to be real things. Um, like Gerald Bull had a 210 millimeter sulfur belt howitzer there. That was literally just like a model, but he was pretending it was real. Um, <laughs> it's just made out of cardboard. Also, <laughs> I mean, probably something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and they also had a, they had modified a T55, which is supposed to have a hundred millimeter gun, but they had stuck the 125 millimeter gun from a T72 into the turret. And, uh, there's like no way that would actually work. Um, in real life <laughs> but it looked cool as hell so they made sure it was prominently displayed they just shoved um, it in the turret like look it totally functions <laughs> it pretty much yeah uh so there's there's a um a french engineer who was in attendance who uh who commented on the the production quality of a lot of the iraqi stuff and he said quote they don't lose over any sleep over quality control do they and you know something in the end they're right we spend a fortune trying to smooth out those rough edges. We make three-star bombs, polished as a mirror and as expensive as jewels. But in, in the end, they're all the same. They only get used once, and the guy who's on the receiving end of one of these is never going to complain because of a few manufacturing defects. And uh, so, yeah, so while some of the Iraqi equipment on display may have been uh, less than practical, nonetheless, Saddam had built up a pretty impressive collections of weapons and industry. And in fact... Uh, the French um, chief of staff or equivalent high-level military position, his name is Maurice Schmidt. He was in attendance, and he said, or he commented on a lot of the, the French equipment, which was on display. Um, and he said uh, later on that, I began to wonder whether or not we hadn't gone a bit too far. I realized <laughs> that we had better begin paying closer attention to what the Iraqis were developing. And uh, yeah, so the expo ended. Um, and less than a year later, Iraq invaded Kuwait and, um, soon after the United States, United Kingdom, France, Saudi Arabia, and another of other, other countries launched a sustained bombing campaign of Iraqi industry, both military and civilian. Most of Iraq's military industry was destroyed as well as most of its civilian in- industry and a great deal of civilian infrastructure. British troops who were deployed to Saudi Arabia in order to, soon launch an invasion many of them were not issued with desert camouflage and you want to know why because they had sold all of their desert camouflage to iraq two years <laughs> earlier <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah that might be my favorite part of this whole thing france would have had airstrikes but they sold their entire uh fucking mirage fleet <laughs> <laughs> to iraq <laughs> Yeah, um, and there the the Iraqi equipment pretty much was useless against the American. Their T fifty fives were pretty much immediately wiped out by American M one Abrams um, tanks, or bombed by F one seventeen stealth jets or F fifteens, or shot down all their MiG twenty ones and Mirages and stuff. But honestly. They acquitted themselves surprisingly well, given the circumstances. For, there was one battle um, in which Iraqi T-55s had been equipped with kind of a an, a local Iraqi-produced like laminate armor that they had applied to the outside of the turret and the hull. And it, it, it worked very well. Like the Saudis launched – there's one particular tank or Iraqi T-55 tank with this armor, which was hit by multiple Saudi anti-tank missiles and sustained no damage whatsoever. Um, 
And so really the failure or the, the reason the Iraqis were overwhelmed so quickly had less to do with the quality of their equipment and more to do with like systemic crippling issues of leadership and training and strategy and tactics and basically literally everything else that requires a military to run except equipment. Um, that was something that I, I came across and I, I think it's going to be in part two or three, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. but it's, uh, it was the Saddam, uh, it, it was like multiple firsthand accounts of conscripts in Saddam's army and the, the philosophy of Saddam's military leadership, which was, there was none. Um, yeah, in fact, his idea on military leadership and training boiled down to like, kind of like if you were a singer or like, or like an artist, it's like you either have it or you don't. And it yeah. wasn't something that could like the, the concept of being a warrior was not something that could be trained, which is <laughs> the most absurd thing that I've ever fucking heard of. Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. And of course there was the problem of like appointing, um, political <laughs> leaders, to military positions when they had no idea what they were doing or just like executing generals who like lost one particular battle um, he did enjoy executing people. Oh, he did. Yeah. I'll give him credit for this much, though. Even though his soldiers were executed uh, for retreating and, and his officers were executed uh, for <laughs> retreating, uh, for, through most of history and, and on this podcast, we've, um, we've gone over a few uh, instances where something like this has happened, especially like I think it's our second episode. We talked about Luigi Cadorna, who, brought, yeah. who actually brought back like Roman decimation. <laughs> um, but you know, yeah. nobody ever executes the officers. It's almost always the soldiers. Uh-huh. Except, so, yeah, at, at least Saddam is equal in his insanity. Yeah, Saddam yeah. Hussein, I mean, icon kind of, of um, equality, <laughs> equal opportunity executioner. I suppose. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, kind of the one of the more depressing aspects of this whole thing was. Um, one thing I didn't mention was the 1988 Al-Anfal campaign, genocidal campaign against Kurds in northern Iraq, including the, I believe, March of 1988, the uh, attack on Halabja in which Iraqi chemical weapons were used en masse to murder thousands of uh, civilians, um, right. all with the full knowledge of the United States, United Kingdom, Soviet Union, France, and so on. And it took another two years, and it took Iraq invading and annexing Kuwait in order for the United States and its allies to turn against Saddam. So it didn't matter how many people he executed, how many people he gassed to death, or how many countries he invaded, as long as it wasn't Kuwait or Saudi Arabia. And I feel like there is a lesson to be learned, but nobody learned the lesson, as we can see now with... uh, Yemen, American support for the Saudi war in Yemen, right? unconditionally selling weapons as they kill by the tens of thousands Yemeni civilians. So, Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of um, things that we can kind of see um, in between the two. And uh, it hasn't come out exactly yet, but I know, um, you obviously, know, everybody knows about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi by now. Yeah. But um, the rumor is, and I would not doubt if it's true, the reason why he was killed is that he was going to expose Saudi usage of chemical weapons in Yemen. Wow. If that's true, that's 
crazy. And of course, nothing's going to change. No, um, no, because I mean, look what's <laughs> happening in Syria. Um, yeah, I'm uh, granted. I'm by no means advocating for military action in Syria. Uh, I'm one of the. Uh, I, I don't know if it's kind of an oxymoron that I'm an amateur military historian and a pacifist <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, uh, it, whenever there's chemical warfare u- or chemical weapon usage, everybody likes to point fingers and oh, oh, well, they have it. No, they have it. And mm-hmm. I mean, these things aren't easy to make and keep and use yeah. effectively. Um, there's terrorist groups generally don't have actual chemical weapons. I no. mean, we saw limit, limited chemical weapons usage in Iraq uh, during the American occupation when uh, they oh. decided to put uh, was it uh, chlorine precursors in IEDs. Um, oh, yeah. And it worked terribly uh, because that's yeah. not how chlorine bombs work. Yeah. It's a very, like, precise scientific process in order to, like, if you actually want to kill people with chemical weapons, you can't just, like, dump chlorine on them. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Uh, I would say if uh, an F-16 drops a mustard bomb canister on fucking Sana, we probably know is Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know if, if anything else has, has come out about that, but I know that was the rumors that, and because they, they had been dealing with him for years and that had to be a very good reason to murder him. Yeah, I think so. I mean, another theory I've heard with him is that he was killed because less of what he is doing, but more of, because he, he was never really like a big opposition guy. He was usually pretty, you know, mainstream status quo in the like right. Saudi establishment. But then, um, and as, and he, he was well connected with the previous um, crown prince or king or whoever. And, uh, and so by killing him, you're kind of showing to everyone else that uh, like you're not safe. Right. It was, it was, uh, was it Salman's? pretty much showing where he and you weren't safe anywhere right right and, and I th- also showing that he's bulletproof because look nothing's happening to him yet although <laughs> I, I think i mean granted i in this day and age you see like one word from a tweet and you then base your entire worldview off of it but um i think i saw another rumor which is like his position in saudi is a lot more tenuous than he might have us think interesting um but of course, that is entirely, literally based off probably one word I saw like three days ago in a tweet somewhere. <laughs> That's okay. That's how you run a country these days. <laughs> um, but th- thank you so much for uh, for coming on and, and going into detail about um, the insanity that was Saddam's <laughs> weapons manufacturing complex. Well, thank you, thank you for letting me talk about it for an hour. Yeah, um, nobody lets me do that anymore. <laughs> Well, I mean, who else am I supposed to talk to other than the guy that's in Iraq right now? Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose. You know, I'm in a pretty good position for that, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we had a little bit of a power outage there in the middle, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> it's a developing country, yeah, yeah, that we bombed a lot, <laughs> specifically destroying its electrical infrastructure. Yeah. So clearly, uh, George W. Bush is <laughs> fucking my podcast right now. Dude. But he is in the hashtag resistance. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I totally off topic, but I explode on somebody that I knew. Uh, <laughs> I, I know pretty well, um, like in person. They're not like family, but they, I've known them for probably 10 years. 
And uh, they said, you know, like, say what you <laughs> say what you will about George W. Bush, but at least he was res- uh, he respected America or something stupid like that. Oh, God. <laughs> like, I guess that's nationalism distilled distilled into a fine if, if American nationalism was distilled into anything it'd be a Bud Light sold at Walmart oh Jesus <laughs> you're uh, not wrong <laughs> uh, so before we go do you have yep. anything uh, that you like to plug like a book show your Twitter anything like that Um, no books yet however if you would like to see more hot takes about t55s you can follow me on twitter at um haycraft underscore travis that's h-a-y-c-r-a-f-t underscore t-r-a-v-i-s all right thank you so much again for uh joining us and uh maybe we can uh, get you back on some other time talk about uh, uh some more people getting bombed <laughs> with german-made chemicals uh, that would be a really good time yeah and uh <laughs> well thanks for having me on yeah anytime man have a good one Yeah, you too. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible. And as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.